Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. Paul is in Ephesus, and as a result of Paul teaching in the lecture hall of a man named Tyrannus on a daily basis, we read back in verse 10 of chapter 19 that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, It is not that every single individual in that whole region heard the gospel. This, This all, as in all who lived in Asia, is an acceptable and understood way of using exaggeration to make a point. And the point is that the church was growing. Because the church was growing, and many were calling in faith upon the name of the Lord Jesus, God was performing miracles through Paul, healings and exorcisms, casting out evil spirits. And this continued to make a significant impression on the inhabitants of the city. And so we are picking up our reading this morning in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 18, and I'll read through verse 20. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So... The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This is God's word. First of all, what I want us to see in this text this morning is public opinion. Public opinion. Paul, he would later go on to write in a letter back to the believers in Ephesus. He would write this in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The spirit that works in those who are disobedient, even to this day, is the one who has been given temporary authority over this world. He is the enemy of God, the adversary. And he is accompanied by what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, chapter 12, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The fact that the devil is the prince of the power of the air and the spirits that do his bidding are in the heavenly places does not mean that they're up in the clouds floating around somewhere in the atmospheric distance. This is the Bible's way of saying that they are invisible. And that they occupy the invisible space around us. So even as you cannot see the air, but you know it's there because you feel the movement. We're thankful for that this morning. In the same way, you cannot see evil spirits. But you know that they are there because you and I experience their activity. The seven sons of Sceva, as we looked at last week, discovered how much power a man who was possessed by one spirit exercised over them. And because they attempted to use the name of the Lord Jesus without personally possessing the authority of Jesus, their attempts to cast this demon out, it left them naked and wounded. And that episode offers us a glimpse of what is going on behind the scenes in Ephesus as the church grows and the kingdom comes in the lives of individuals that are transformed by the power of the gospel. The adversary, in other words, is not going to willingly give up 
any ground. Ephesus was a city steeped in magic arts. Even today, you can visit museums in London and in Paris and see ancient parchments dating back to the first century that contain spells designed to allow one to interact with the spiritual world and communicate with the spirits that inhabit the invisible realm. And these are referred to as Ephesian scripts, these parchments that are on display because they were found in the ruins of Ephesus, which only goes to prove how prominent was the practice of magic in this city. The spells and incantations that are written on these parchments, they're largely gibberish. There are sounds and words and names that are seemingly thrown together in this hodgepodge of, of nonsensical phrases. But according to the theory of magic, these spells invoke the spirits to either bless or curse, uh, to bring prosperity or misfortune, to bring health and wealth or sickness and poverty. Using these spells on these parchments was an attempt to manipulate the spiritual realm. But such practices are forbidden to the people of God. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 11 reads, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall be none among you who use divination, or one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. And then verse 14 in Deuteronomy 18 goes on to say, For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Now we know these verses are not only for the Hebrew people, but for all of us. The reason the nations within Canaan practiced these things is because they worshipped idols. All of these practices I just mentioned were tied directly into idol worship. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 through 17 goes on to say about the nations inhabiting and surrounding Israel. They made him, that is God, they made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. To practice magic is to communicate in some form with evil spirits. But this is not only an Old Testament teaching, and this is why I'm saying that it applies to us today as well. It's repeated in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul, writing from Ephesus to the believers in Corinth, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be sharers in demons. Now, if this is all ringing a bell, if you recall back in Acts chapter 15, but a few months, one of the four requirements for Gentile converts to Christianity was that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. One of the reasons for this is because idol worship is a pathway to demonic activity. 
And though most of us are probably not in danger to bowing to a literal statue, our society does increasingly promote the magical arts. Wicca, maybe you've heard of that. I used to hear of it quite a bit when I was in high school. Wicca is an ancient form of paganism. It's been modernized and it's been made appealing to young people, but it's basically witchcraft, which is currently, according to a Focus on the Family article from 2018, the fastest growing religion in America, <clears throat> particularly among teens. If you watch TV or movies, you will have noticed the explosive growth over the last decade in interest in the topics of magic and spellcasting and the supernatural. A Ouija board, you've probably heard of that. that. That children's board game is based on methods used by psychics to communicate with the dead. Hint, the dead, they don't talk. But demons disguised as the dead certainly do. And a Ouija board, though it seems like an innocent board game, is a way to contact that spiritual realm. An evil spirit's going to walk through any door that you open for it. Sex engine bookstores, Barnes and Noble, if you go into one of those. Sex engine bookstores on witchcraft, paganism, and magic have outgrown the Christian sections. Public opinion in this area has changed. Those that used to would have had to practice such things in secret are more and more openly received. Our society is becoming more like Ephesus. And I'm pointing all this out because we need to be aware of the spiritual dangers of dabbling in these areas. I am not saying that, that reading a, a Harry Potter novel is going to give you a demon. And I'm not saying that the guy doing a magic show using slate of hand and misdirection is calling on evil spirits to help him. We do not need to be so fearful or so hypersensitive that we are calling something or someone demonic that is probably only ignorant or misled. But we do need to understand that when a society promotes magical practices like in Ephesus, dark supernatural forces are especially active. As a society, we invite them in. The Christian need not fear. The ones like the seven sons of Sceva who do not personally know Jesus and therefore do not possess the authority of the Lord Jesus are wide open to demonic influence in their lives. And this is usually not manifested in such a way that you can say, this is an evil spirit at work. It's often much more subtle, much more disguised, much more deceitful. deceitful. Again, as we read this morning, in Sunday school, Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. However, those spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, what do they work through? They work through flesh and blood. They work through people. Conflict, confusion, discouragement, despair, outburst of anger, frustration, these are all things the adversary tempts us with. And those temptations, they often come through other people. 
so much the better for him, the adversary, if we don't even recognize the source of where that stuff is coming from. After the incident of the seven men fleeing from the one possessed man, the account of that episode spread throughout the city. And we read in verse 17 of chapter 19 in Acts, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Something about the event shook the city. If there is power in words and names, then the name of Jesus seemed especially powerful. To abuse or misuse that name was to face severe consequences, or at least the thinking went among those who did not yet personally know Jesus. But what about those who did? What about those who already had made a profession of faith? So we go from public opinion regarding magical practices, their acceptance. We go from public opinion to public disclosure. Public disclosure. We read specifically of those who had made a profession of faith in verse 18. Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. What's interesting and instructive about this is how these were people who were already Christians. They had believed. Within the church in Ephesus, there were people who had called upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. So these were men and women whose sins had been forgiven, who possessed the Holy Spirit, and in whose lives the kingdom of God had come. Yet there were things in their lives that needed confessing and disclosing. Their sin was brought out into the light. To confess is to agree. To confess is first of all to agree with God about a matter. If God convicts you of something that is displeasing to him, you confess or you agree with him about it. Sometimes, case in point here in our text, Public confession is necessary. If you have sinned publicly, then typically it is necessary to confess publicly. That is, if you have sinned against someone before others, your confession of that sin should be made to that person you sinned against as well as to those present when you sinned against him or her. If you're a public figure and you sin publicly, you should confess publicly. But confession is always first and foremost to God. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, private sins that directly affect no one but yourself. Well, I shouldn't say they don't affect anyone. All sin affects somebody. All sin has ripple effects. But when we're talking about private sins, those things like immoral thoughts, hatred in your heart toward another person, uh, covetousness, bitterness, those things that were private sins should be confessed directly to God. When you're convicted, that is, you feel rightly guilty, uh, guilty 
then agree with God about that and receive the cleansing of your conscience. Sin for the Christian does not cut you off from fellowship with God. Nothing can cut off the Christian from fellowship with God because Jesus was already cut off from fellowship with God on your behalf. Sin does not break fellowship with God for the Christian, but, and I've said this before, it does break the harmony of the relationship. We need to be clear of the distinction there. If you've hurt your spouse, you two are still married. But until that hurt is addressed, there is what? There is disharmony in the marriage. It's the same as our relationships with God. So private sins should be confessed directly to God. Sometimes private sins do need to be confessed to another. You are not disclosing to another what you have done in order to receive forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins against himself. But sometimes confession to your spouse, to a trusted friend, to a spiritual leader, to a pastor, brings relief. Why? Because another can assure you of God's forgiveness. Not forgive you, they're not forgiving you, but assure you what you need to be reminded of, that God hears and is faithful to forgive. Sometimes confession to another about private sin is necessary in order for you to be able to receive accountability in the future. For example, if a person is consistently looking at internet pornography and gets caught in the sin, confess, sin, confess, sin, confess cycle without ever actually repenting, that is stopping the practice, then confession to someone else is a way to invite that other person to walk alongside of you. A way for them to challenge you. A way for them to ask you those tough questions. Because you and I are less likely to repeat sins if we know that someone we trust and love will be asking us how we're doing in that particular area. Sins against another person always need to first be confessed to God and then confess to the person that you sinned against. It's in the act of confessing to the offended that you are asking that person for forgiveness. Your harmony with God will not be restored until you have gone and taken care of things with the one that you sinned against. Between you and him, yes. But if it's more than just a private matter, if it's a sin that affects another person, in order for the harmony to be restored, ultimately, it's not just that harmony between you and the Lord, it's also confession to the person whom you've sinned against. And so this leads us to the very public confession and disclosure made by these Ephesian believers. Now you would expect to read that these were non-believers making a profession of faith, confessing their sins in the process. But no, these are Christians in verse 18. Does that surprise you? It should not. We would like to think that, that everyone sitting in church week after week has everything together spiritually. We'd like to think that. But we know that's simply not true. We know it's not true of ourselves, and so we realize it's not true of others. Again, 
Paul writes from Ephesus to the church in Corinth. And this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. This tells us that it is a reality in the church that believers are capable of acting in the flesh. Shocker, I know. That we are capable of acting out of step with the Holy Spirit. On one hand, for the church in Ephesus and for the church in Corinth, this is understandable. They were both relatively young churches. But Christians of any age and any experience are capable of sinning and do sin. Newer Christians are more prone to continue in old sin habits and patterns that haven't been broken yet. There are sins that Christians need to confess. But the next thing we need to realize is that sinning for the Christian is an anomaly. It is an abnormality. It is not normal. Just because you sin does not mean that you have to sin. As a Christian, you are called to live a life that's pleasing to God. And you are empowered to live a life that is pleasing to God. You and I as Christians, we are never given permission in the scriptures to continue in known sin. It's not there. We don't have that liberty. Sin will weigh you down with legitimate guilt. Sin will grieve the Holy Spirit within you. Sin will steal your peace, kill your joy, and destroy your witness to others. Is sin serious for the Christian? You bet it is. Just because a believer sins does not mean that we should excuse it or that we should tolerate sin in our own lives. And this is precisely what we observe in our text. Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. They were Christians, but they would not allow sin to fester in the darkness. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Sunlight is a disinfectant. I said that one time to a bunch of young people and they didn't know what I was talking about. But we all understand this. Bring that mold out into the sunlight and what's going to happen is going to die. Bring your hidden sin out into the light before the Lord. Confession and disclosure of those things that offend and grieve God will bring a clear conscience, will bring peace, will bring fellowship with one another, and will bring harmony with God. When is it necessary to make such public confessions? Well, I did say that when you have sinned publicly, public confession is often appropriate. For example, a pastor is a very public figure. 
if a pastor, God forbid, though it's been unfortunately happening quite happening quite recently here, if a pastor commits adultery, then his sin affects many people. It was a private sin, yes, but his private sin produces ripple effects. We understand that. So in the vast majority of cases, this would need to be publicly confessed. It's the same for a Christian politician or a prominent Christian in some other field. At the very least, sins that affect the body need to be confessed to the body. Outside of what I've already mentioned, when is it necessary to make a public confession? Well, there's no specific indication in our text this morning. And one must follow the Lord's leading in the matter. These public confessions, they were healthy for the church. And they enhanced the witness of the church. Why? Because they demonstrated to those outside the life-changing power of the gospel. Confession is not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. Because you're demonstrating that God is at work in your life. So there's no one-size-fits-all rule here for public confession. In this case, the Holy Spirit began moving Christians toward confession. And so that is what they did. But notice what drove these Ephesian believers to confess and disclose their practices. It was the fact, as verse 17 says, that fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. After the story of those seven men who lost the battle with the forces of darkness, after that spread throughout the city, fear of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus fell upon everyone. That is what a renewed realization of the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus will do. It will invoke fear. If you're not a believer, the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ should awaken fear in you of what's to come. If Jesus exercises such power and authority now in this present day, how much more will he exercise power and authority on the day of God's righteous judgment against all forms of sin and disobedience? It is not fear-mongering to remind people who are not in fellowship with God that they are under the wrath of God. It is not fear-mongering any more than if you told someone that there is a cliff up ahead and they're walking towards it. If you keep walking with your eyes closed, you will step right into the abyss. You should be afraid of what's to come and you should be thankful for the warning. If you're a believer, the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus should also awaken fear. But in your case, it's not the fear of wrath. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. It is the healthy and the heavy remorse that accompanies offending the absolutely holy God who is also your loving Father. That's the type of fear that Christians possess. When you were a child and you disobeyed your dad, he probably spanked you. You feared the paddle. 
So you, in a sense, did fear your father. But you also knew the discipline was done in love. You knew that it was corrective. You feared the disappointment of your dad more than you did the pain of the whipping. Fearing who you love is different than fearing one that you're indifferent towards. The teenager who is arrested for drunk driving may fear facing his dad's disappointment. That's one type of fear. But he doesn't fear the disappointment of the judge. What he fears about the judge is the judge's power and authority to put him in prison. A non-believer fears God, but only out of a desire to avoid punishment. A believer fears God out of a desire to please the one whom you have offended and grieved. And I hope you hear the difference between those two. Fearing the power and the authority of God should drive the non-Christian to his or her knees at the foot of the cross because it's here that judgment was poured out upon the Son so that the Father will pour out his love upon you. Fearing the power and the authority of God should drive the Christian to remove whatever is keeping him or her from experiencing the fullness of God's love. What's in the way? What's affecting that harmony? Sin does not stop the flow of God's love. Not in a Christian's life. Sin does not reduce God's favor towards you. But sin does certainly affect your ability to receive and enjoy all that God offers to you in Christ Jesus. Public opinion to public disclosure. And now we move to public renunciation. Public renunciation. The way verse 18 is worded, it seems that these sins being confessed were related to the magic practices in the city. Regardless, we know that the principles of confession apply to all sin. However, in verse 19, we're told specifically, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. The first group, the group of verse 18, that confessed and disclosed their practices were probably those of the lower or the poor class. And I say this because the second group of verse 19, in contrast to the first, was definitely the upper or richer class in the city because they are the only ones that could have afforded books containing magical formulas. Books were expensive in ancient times. They were all handwritten on parchment. That is, dried and treated animal skins. They were not easy or cheap to obtain. These two, in verse 19, are believers. They are ones who formerly practiced magic. The first group made public confessions, at least publicly before the church. And these also, verse 19, made public confessions. Bonfires, they will get your attention. Especially bonfires that are fueled by expensive books. A typical worker, day laborer, earned one silver piece 
a day. The cost of all the books added up to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's basically 50,000 days wages or a year's wage for 137 workers. The statement made by these acts are significant. First of all, there is Old Testament precedent for what's going on here. The Israelites, they were told by God to burn idolatrous objects. Deuteronomy 7, 5. You shall tear down their altars and burn their graven images with fire. The magical contents of these books were clearly forbidden. And these believers that used them desired to renounce their former practices in a very public way. And so they began burning them in the sight of everyone. First of all, what I want you to notice, first, the owners renounced sin publicly. They renounced sin publicly. Now, we've already talked about public confession. I just want to point out that here is an example of what that looks like. The former practitioners of magic did not only claim to now be followers of Jesus. They made a very public statement about it. The spells that were contained in these books, these parchments, they were secret. Only the ones who knew the spells were supposed to utter them. The effectiveness of the spell was believed to be bound up in the secrecy. So the more secret the spell is, the more effective it was supposed to be. If the spell was divulged, brought out to the light, so the thinking went, then the magic was no longer as powerful or as effective as it was before. Basically, by burning the spells, the statement is the spells are no longer in operation. They could no longer be uttered. By burning them publicly, the owners were also renouncing the whole idea of power being related to secrecy. God operates in the light. Even those things done in darkness now, Jesus said, they will be shouted from the rooftops. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Public renunciation is a way for you to bring what was practiced in the dark out into the light. Now, I'm not saying that you air your dirty laundry or do what so many do on the internet these days, which is overshare. But we as Christians do need to be willing to make public stands against those things that are an affront to God. There's very clear things in Scripture, abortion being one of them. Secondly, the owners renounced sin voluntarily. They renounce sin voluntarily. We do not read that Paul insisted they burn their books of magic spells. This was a spontaneous reaction to the movement of God in their midst. God was up to something. Now, I know for certain that Paul and other church leaders spoke against the practice of magic. There's no doubt about that. But they also understood that each person must make up his or her mind before God about how he or she will respond. When it comes to someone's salvation, he or she must not be coerced, manipulated, or forced. Jesus did not force anybody to follow him. And we must not try to either. Coerced or 
manipulated conversions are not genuine transformations. They will not stand the test of time. Coercing conversions is a surefire way to fill the church with false converts whose telling fruit will come to bear eventually. That said, like the Apostle Paul, we should urge, exhort, encourage, and warn. Then, with our duty discharged, allow people to freely make their own decisions. It is a powerful testimony when you see someone who voluntarily renounces practices that grieve the Lord. That's powerful. If you are convicted about something that you were doing, the Lord longs for you to freely choose to renounce it. If you are convicted about something you're not doing, the Lord longs for you to freely choose to begin doing it. That's love. <laughs> freely chosen for the sake of the one that you love. Thirdly, notice, the owners renounce sin at great cost to themselves. There's a great cost. This is obvious. They literally torched what was worth a lot of money. The not-so-obvious cost was their reputations as people who had power and influence and respect as practitioners of magic. Following Jesus where he leads will cost you something. In fact, it will cost you a lot. If you have not yet experienced the sacrifices involved in being a Christian, you are either a very young Christian, a disobedient Christian, or you're not a Christian. I'm not trying to be me. I'm simply reiterating the words of Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does the daily cross represent? Sacrifice. A cross is hard to die on. Sacrifices are not supposed to be easy. Following Jesus definitely means that you must renounce known sin. The Holy Spirit changes the disposition of the believer's heart toward those sins that he or she formerly loved. I hope you've noticed that. Those things that are known sin that you used to enjoy. If you are a Christian, they no longer appear enjoyable. Something has changed in your heart. But that does not mean that it's going to be easy to relinquish those things. Sometimes it will be a struggle. Yet the grace of God is always present to strengthen you. Following Jesus also means you will be called to give up things that are not necessarily sin, but hinder the harmony of your relationship with God. What do I mean by that? Anytime a relationship, an object, or a desire begin to be loved over and above your love for God, it must be renounced. It doesn't mean that you push loved ones away, but it might mean you reorient your affections 
so that God is the one that you love with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Only then will you be able to love others well. Only then will you be able to love your spouse well. Only then will you be able to love those around you well with the love that flows from your first love. It's an orientation of the heart. So that might mean that you sell your boat. I don't know if that's a thing for any of you, but some people it is. They love their boat. It might mean that you stop chasing security in your bank account. It might mean that you get rid of some obviously sinful object that you know is displeasing to the Lord. For the Ephesian believers, their magic books, they had to go. Not sold to someone so that somebody else still had uh, access to them, but burned, obliterated, a clean break from the past, a clean break from the darkness. You're not a magician in Ephesus, so I don't know what this looks like for you. But I do know that following Jesus is costly. However, we cannot stop there. Because the text, it does not end with fire. The fire does not have the final word. Destruction is never the end for those who follow Jesus. Burning the books, renouncing the sin, reorienting the heart. These are all means. They are all stepping stones to something else. Jesus did not stop with his call for his disciples to deny themselves. That's not where he ended. He continued. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus did not end his statement with, with death. What did he end it with? He ended it with life. Confession is not the end. Repentance is not the end. Sacrifice is not the end. The life that Jesus offers is the end. Jesus himself is the goal of confession and denunciation and repentance and sacrifice. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. What was the result of the bonfires? What was the result of the sacrifices? God's word, his truth, namely his gospel growing mightily. It not only expanded, it prevailed. Whatever you lose in following Jesus is nothing, is nothing compared to what you gain. Because what you gain is the very life designed for you by God himself. What did Jesus say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is what we all long for. This is what we were all created for. Contentment, peace, satisfaction, joy, abundance. And all of those things are bound up in eternal life. And eternal life is only in the Son. The cross was not the end. Jesus did not stay in the grave. He died in order to receive your punishment. He rose in order to give you his life. What you deserve, Jesus received. What you received, you did not earn. Your debt 
was forgiven at the cross. Life in Christ is granted at the resurrection. Because the Ephesian believers renounced their idolatry, their former ways, their misplaced affections, their sinful desires, because they did these things, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Not just around them and through them, but in them. In them. It's the same. It's the same in your life. You want to find life? Then lose it. Lose it. The word of the Lord will be prevailing and mighty in you through and to the extent that you renounce whatever is standing in the way. The life of the Son of God will be mighty and prevailing in you and through you to the extent that you renounce whatever is standing in the way. Let us pray. Father, we have been reminded this morning from your word that you are a holy God and that you do not tolerate sin in your children. But we've also been reminded, Lord, that you are a loving God, that you are a merciful and a graceful God, that you empower us to confess and to repent and to walk in freedom. And that, Lord, you always, always provide the way for us to live in relationship, in harmony, in abundance with you. Father, we ask this morning as we consider your word that's just been spoken into our hearts as we go to the table to the Lord's Supper that you would search our hearts that you would apply these truths to our lives and that through it that you would bring this fellowship of brothers and sisters in closer unity and greater love together in Jesus name Amen